The reading's taken from, well, it is Isaiah 11, and it's on page 696 in the Pew Bibles. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash round his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered peoples of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile towards Ephraim. They will swoop down on the, on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and on Moab, on Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it into, up into seven streams, so that men can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray as we start together this evening. Father God, we thank you so much again for your word and for the wonderful gift that it is. Father God, we recognize that we can be uh, so busy in our daily lives, but help us now just to spend a moment being quiet and listening to what you have to say to us through uh, your prophet Isaiah, through your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Great. Well, what are you hoping in? I wonder what it is you're pinning your hopes on. We all have hopes. They'll be based on something or someone And back in 2009, many Americans, and indeed many people around the world, pinned their hopes on Barack Obama. The iconic poster behind me very much captured the feeling of the time. A time where 
well, the world was in turmoil, economic turmoil, and racial tensions were high. Obama was the man who was going to lead the free world into economic prosperity and racial equality. Well, whatever you thought of Obama's policies and his time in office, you don't need to be Nick Robinson to see that many people who held those feelings of hope now today find themselves in great uncertainty. Their hopes turn to fear, maybe even despair. Personally, for me, on a lighter note, I placed my hopes in Jurgen Klopp, manager of Liverpool FC. The energy and enthusiasm that he brought to the club was surely a recipe for success. However, whilst my hopes are still high for Klopp and the Reds, For this season, they've taken a dent recently as we've been knocked out of two competitions and dropped out of the top four of the Premier League. Or perhaps for you, as you battle with the wind and the rain, the greyness of January and the slog of the daily routine, your hopes are set in a holiday somewhere hot, warm, sunny and dry, somewhere away from the office. Well, we need hope, don't we, to get through the tough times, to give us something to look forward to, to keep us going. And we've very much seen in our series in Isaiah so far that God's people are in a pretty serious situation. They're in serious trouble and are in desperate need of something to hope in. Looking back at what we've seen so far, God's people have failed to live rightly before God. They had rebelled against him time and time again. And as a result, God had fairly rejected them and handed them over to the enemy empires that surrounded them. Ahaz, king of Judah, of God's people, had turned to Assyria in their time of need for help. He had put his trust in man rather than trusting God. In response to his lack of faith, Isaiah prophesied judgment, that Judah would fall to the Assyrians, that the nation would be destroyed. But he also prophesied hope and salvation. Whilst the nation would come under severe judgment, God would save the few who did trust in him. They're described as the remnant. And God was going to rescue them, and provide them with a king who, unlike Ahaz, would rule rightly. God's people then are undoubtedly despairing. Their lives are literally crumbling around them. But in the midst of this dire situation, we see there is still some hope. But unlike American presidents and Liverpool managers and holidays that are all too short, this is a hope that will not disappoint. This hope is in the King. And this evening I have the privilege of zooming us in on the glorious hope we see here in Isaiah 11, where we see hope in the perfect nature of the King, hope in the purpose of the King, and hope in the offer of the King. So, firstly then, looking at verse 1 to 5, we see the hope we have in the perfect nature of the king. In verse 1, we're told that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, 
From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Well, what's that all about? Well, going back a good few generations from this point, we have Jesse, father of David. David, who would go on to lead God's people as king. And and God's promise stated that it would be through his line, David's line, that a saviour would come. But here in Isaiah, we see that that line is all but wiped out. The tree has been cut down. Judah has been defeated and largely destroyed. However, just when it seems that David's line is finished, a fresh shoot or branch appears from the stump. And in these opening verses, this small hope, this branch, points us to the son of David, the king who would rightly rule God's people. We're told some pretty amazing things about this character, the character of this king. This king who is to come, this branch from the stump. Look with me at verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Here we see the uh, the promised king will be filled with God's spirit. And with that, we see that this king will be perfect in mind, filled with the spirit of wisdom and understanding. This king will be perfect in action, filled with the spirit of counsel and power. This king will be perfect in heart, filled with the spirit of knowledge and of a right fear of the Lord. And remember how Isaiah's listeners would have heard this. King Ahaz failed you because he feared man more than he feared and trusted God. But one day there will come a king whose heart will be perfect. He will rightly fear and trust God. This is the picture of the king we have here in these verses. He'll be perfect in mind, action and heart. And we also see that he'll be perfect in executing justice. Verse 4, with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. What a leader this is, perfectly fair, just and caring. What a contrast that would have been compared to some of the leaders and the kings of Isaiah's time. What a contrast that is for us today, to our own leaders Political viewpoints aside, when we hear that the number of those sleeping rough in the UK has doubled in the last year, homelessness rising at an unprecedented rate, we long for a leader who executes justice perfectly, who cares and provides for the poor and the needy. I was in a meeting on Monday where I heard that there was a a very strong likelihood, if not a certainty, that uh, the junction, a youth drop-in centre in Andover, would be closed. The facility has helped thousands of the most vulnerable young people in Andover escape the nightmare of being homeless, seeking to support them, to get them back into a home, to provide them with education and work. And now the centre is facing closure due to a complete cut in funding. Isaiah did not live in a time of perfect justice for all. And we certainly don't either today. 
We desperately need something, someone to hope in, don't we? Well, here we see a king who will be perfect in mind, action, heart, and in justice. This is the perfect king. And of course, in all this, Isaiah is pointing us to the Messiah, the promised king who would rescue his people, the son of David, Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, we see God's spirit descending upon him. He is the one who is filled with the spirit, who alone is the one who is perfect in mind, action, heart, and in executing judgment. He is the perfect king, and in him we have hope. Well, having seen then the perfect nature of this king, we now look to the nature of his kingdom. In our second point, we explore the hope we have in the purpose of this king. Leaders and politicians will have different purposes, different mandates. We've uh, already thought about Obama this evening. But across the board, those in positions of authority will have goals to achieve, purposes to fulfill. Mandela in ending apartheid, Clement Attlee in founding the National Health Service, Churchill in repelling and defeating the Nazi threat. Many great leaders have had a great sense of purpose and often, against the odds, achieved their goals. Well, here we see the purpose of this king is greater, much greater than all of those. Ultimately, this king's purpose is to restore to the world the harmony of Eden in its pre-fall state. We see this in verse 6 to 8, and the language used is so vivid, isn't it? It paints such a wonderful picture for us. Let me read those verses again. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the, ye- and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will, be, will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child put its hand into the viper's nest. Here we have peace, harmony, creation as it was meant to be. That's what this king has come to do, to bring in this kind of a rule. I don't know if you watched any of the uh, Planet Earth 2 series that was recently on the BBC. There's a group of us uh, in Connect that watched it together, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was wonderful being able to see the amazing wildlife that close up. David Attenborough took us from islands and mountains to deserts and cities. But all the episodes had one thing in common. There was a pretty high animal body count in all of them. From lions having a go at giraffes, which was quite impressive, to leopards stealing pigs. And of course, those iguanas running from those racer snakes on the beach that went viral. It's crazy. It was amazing to watch the predators and their prey. But here, though, David Attenborough wouldn't do so well. Here we don't see any of that. There are no predators, no prey, no death. There is peace and life. Where there should be fighting and fear, there is complete harmony. What an amazing hope this vision gives us. 
we've seen one of the big focus points of Isaiah so far is on the city, the city of Jerusalem, its judgment and also its restoration. But here we don't just see the restoration of a single city, no, we see the restoration of the whole world, the whole earth. We see in these verses that the whole earth will rejoice in God's righteous rule. Verse 9, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, of who he is, of his peace and glory. That's the purpose of this king's rule. More than uniting black and white, more than saving a crumbling economy, more than reducing poverty, the purpose of this king's rule is to bring complete restoration to creation. A peace that we will never have known and will never know under earthly rulers. Perfect relationships that we will never know with our neighbours, our friends, our families. That's the purpose of this perfect king and we have a wonderful hope in it. But the very nature of hope is that its object is something that is not yet in place, something that has not yet come about. And we recognise that, don't we? We don't live in a perfect, peaceful world. We don't have perfectly just and righteous leaders. Today, those things are not. But we do have hope in a day where those things will be. And this brings us on to our final point, hope in the offer of the king. We've seen the nature of the king and the purpose of his rule. And now finally we see what this perfect king has to offer. In verse 10 we hear that there is a day coming for Isaiah's listeners, for God's people, when the root of Jesse, the perfect king, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. That's the offer that this king makes. Unity and glorious rest. And we can now look back and see that Jesus' time on earth, his life, his ministry, death and resurrection, was the fulfilment of that offer. We have this image of people from all nations coming together under this great banner and being united together. That's exactly what Jesus does. In John's Gospel, we hear Jesus predicting his death and saying, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus was lifted up on the cross to save us, to make us right with God. And all those who trust in him are united at the cross. That is his great banner. And I wonder if you've ever thought that church is filled with an odd bunch of people. Maybe look at the person sitting next to you. I don't know. I've often thought that in the past, perhaps. And it is certainly a bit of an odd mix. But actually, that stands as a wonderful testament to the fact that no matter our background, our education, our job status, our relationship status, we the church are united together around the cross of Christ, the banner of the King. It's in Jesus that we are united, 
and it's in a restored relationship with God that we can find rest, true rest. But whilst his work was completed on the cross, when he cried, it is finished, his kingdom has not yet fully been established. Light has dawned, but the sun is not yet fully up. And Tim was taking us through that this morning from Matthew's Gospel. We live in the now, but not yet. Where we recognise that there are wonderful fulfilments of these Gospel promises in the now of our present Christian experience. Living under Christ's Lordship, experiencing the rest he brings and the unity with his people, the Church. But the grandest fulfilment of this is still in the future, in the not yet. When we're in the office uh, as staff here at St. Mary's, Tim, who's over 10 years my senior, will often remind me just how young I am. And many of you here as well will have seen greater conflicts and divisions in the news than I have, and perhaps experienced that firsthand as well. Whether Domestic division or international wars, arguments or divorce, in referendums or elections, from the Houses of Parliament to your own home. We don't have to look far, do we, to see the division that surrounds us, the constant conflict. And it's in recognising the reality of our situation that now enables us to realise just how amazing this offer from the king is. Verse 12, those who are scattered will be assembled. Verse 13, jealousy and hostility will be no more. What a promise this must have been for God's people to hold on to. As their cities crumbled, as they were carried away as exiles to distant lands, the remnants are given this offer of hope. Whether they're in Assyria, Egypt, Cush, or Babylonia, the exiles will one day be gathered together. Even from the four quarters of the earth, it says, the king will unite all peoples around him. And we see in the final verses of this chapter that nothing and no one will stand in the way of this offer being fulfilled. This Old Testament's poetic language describes the wonderful gospel reality that no power can resist God's redemptive purposes. Have a look at verse 16 to 18. But Lord, what if the gulf of the Egyptian sea stands between us and your offer of unity and rest? Don't worry, says the Lord. I'll dry it up for you. But God, how about the river Euphrates? There's no way we're getting over that. Well, don't worry. I'll break it up into seven streams so you can paddle across it in your sandals. Nothing stops God's people coming together. Nothing can stop those who have accepted the king's offer from being welcomed by him. In the New Testament, in Acts, there's the visible reality of this poem Storms, shipwrecks, mobs, snakes, chains, prison, you name it. None of them can stop the gospel from going out to the ends of the earth. And ultimately that's why we're sitting here in Basingstoke tonight. Nothing stops God's gospel going out. And and nothing 
will stop God's people coming in. Forget ACDC. In verse 18, we see there's a highway to heaven. For the remnant of God's people, this would have undoubtedly, undoubtedly kept them going. When they were surrounded by an alien culture of those who didn't know God, who didn't live for him, but worshipped idols instead, Isaiah says to them, remember Moses and how God rescued him and our people from Egypt how he literally made a highway down the middle of the Red Sea. Well, that's what he's going to do for you here. He will lead you out of exile to a glorious rest. Isaiah reminds them that there is a perfect king who would bring in a perfect kingdom and whose offer nothing could stand in the way of. This reminder for God's people then deserves just as much attention from his people today. Are we convinced, as Paul is when he writes in Romans 8, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? For us here today, God has made us this offer of unity and rest that we can know in part as Christians now and can experience in fullness on that day. And there is nothing, nothing that can stand between you and God if you accept this offer. It is such an amazing offer. I was speaking to the youth on Friday night about this, but there's a footballer called Carlos Tevez, an Argentinian footballer who played for the likes of Manchester United and Man City and has recently moved to a Chinese football club in Shanghai. And you might be wondering why he would move all the way to China to play in a relatively unheard of league. Well, it might help you to know that he's what he's uh, earning at his new club. It's £615,000 every week, or £32 million every year, which, if you work it out, is £1 every second. Crazy. It's crazy. When asked about the move, Tevez simply said it was an offer he couldn't resist. £1 every second. I can start to sympathise. But this evening, we've heard of an offer that surpasses even Tevez's paycheck. If we really understand what's being made available to us here, true unity, perfect eternal rest, then surely this is an offer that we can't resist either. This is where we can place our hope. So back then to that opening question. What are you hoping in? Things that will fade and pass, people that will let us down, governments that will fail us, retirements that may disappoint us, or is our hope in the king? If this is what you're putting your hope in, then what difference is it making to your lives? I kind of hope in Liverpool, perhaps foolishly, but I wear a Liverpool shirt, because that's what I'm hoping in, in the football sphere of things. If we hope in the king, what does that look like? Well, there isn't a set shirt to wear. 
Is it simply then forcing ourselves to come to church on a Sunday, to come to Cypher, to maybe even come to the midweek prayer meeting? Because that is what is expected of us. No. If you recognise who the king is, what his coming kingdom will be like, and what he offers us, then our lives will be centred around that hope. We recognise that as we started, that we need hope to get through the tough times, to give us something to look forward to, to keep us going. And the king that we have heard of tonight offers us a hope that will enable us to keep going even when it's toughest. When you're the only Christian in your office or class or friendship group, when it's countercultural or perhaps even costly to live as a Christian, when in times of suffering, of hardship or loss, when you're tired, when you hear the news and just despair. In all those, we can look to God and look to that day when we will experience complete unity, glorious rest, living in an unbroken world under a perfect king. With that certain hope, we can keep going, keep on living as Christians and trusting God. Is this king your king? Is his kingdom what your hope is in? Have you accepted his offer? Let's pray. Lord God, we so easily recognise that we do live in a broken world. We watch the news for five minutes, we have a conversation with our friend, and we recognise that the world is not as it should be. But Father God, we thank you for the wonderful hope that we have seen this evening in Isaiah chapter 11. That we have a perfect king, a perfect kingdom to come, and a wonderful offer that can never be taken away from us. Help us to respond now to those wonderful truths as we go out from here this evening. For your glory. Amen.